welcome. These days when I say welcome, I, I try to really mean it. Because it's, you know, it's kind of a formality when you say welcome. But I think it's a real teaching in itself to feel welcomed and, and welcome people. And there's a story that Alice Walker uh, told. I don't know if I might say some of the uh, same things I said last time I was here. And I don't have too many tricks, so <laughs> you'll just have to bear with me. Um, but there's a story that I remember Alice Walker told, and this is, uh, it was pertinent to me because in my job, I work as a director of the Inside Prison Project, uh, which is a project that runs 20 weekly classes in San Quentin State Prison. And uh, seven of them now are taught by inmates. And then there's a group of volunteers and paid staff that do the other programs. And there's quite a variety. There's meditation and there's yoga. We have a a victim-offender dialogue program, which is very, very exciting. Uh, We build a garden in the prison, so we have a vocational gardening program. And then there's various group processes and uh, (coughs) parole preparation classes. And so in the story, Alice Walker talked about this tribe that uh, had its way of dealing with crime. And in this particular village, if somebody had committed a crime, then um, everybody would come to the center of town. Everybody would put their work down, men, women, children. And this person was to sit in the middle, in the center. And each of the community members would take a turn saying something about that person to the person in which their lives had been touched in a, in a favorable way. And so this would go on sometimes for a day, a day and a half. And um, the person was welcomed back into the community, after which there would be a feast. Now, in some way, you may think, well, you know, that's kind of uh, too good to be true. But I think it's pretty tough on crime, actually. Because how would you like to sit, you know, amongst your peers and your community members being reminded of who you really are while you have forgotten that yourself for that moment? That's not easy to take. But it's also a very different way of uh, understanding the importance of truly remembering who you are. Or or perhaps even better, connecting to the inquiry of who am I. So so I often tell that story when we start a group because it's such a different way of holding a group experience than the usual shame and internalized shame that comes with being in blue, having a number, and being an inmate in a system. So perhaps we're doing that as well tonight. We're trying to come together in uh, that consciousness of the inquiry of who are we.
think one of the most remarkable things about who we are when, when I reflect on it is this bodily state. Um, you know, it's really kind of a, a, a rental agreement, right? You, you get one when you check in at the check-in counter and you have to leave it behind. Um, but it's also, I find, very much at the core of my own spirituality in terms of finding a ground to connect with. And bodies are so honest. You know, there's kind of an underemphasis on emotions in our culture and an overemphasis on mental process. And there's this vacuum around sensation, around what there really is to feel. But when you, what you find is when you do your sitting and you really connect to your breathing or other prevalent sensations is that it really integrates your experience. It's really kind of a, a piece of sanity. Um, it's not necessarily that it's all there is. It's a portal. You know, you sit at the portal of this breath coming in. You know, inspiriting, the spirit coming in, inspiration. And then expiriting, expiration. And you do it without agenda. Well, how's that? You sit there on life's terms, feeling the spirit move in and move through, pass through, sitting at the portal. There's got to be some wisdom in taking that stance. Because the, the other alternative is, of course, to go with circumstance. This is what we talk about in the prison as well. To uh, We say, you know, screw circumstance, settling your own stance. Because, you know, so much that we try to do out there is really kind of trying to get a different hand of cards. But what we learn, because, you know, life has these rug-pulling lessons, is that um, it isn't so much, you know, trying to get a better hand of cards, it's can you show up for the cards that are yours? And can you... um, play them the best way you know how. Nobody's talking about winning or losing here, right? But the best way you know how. So then showing up is really the name of the game. So that the quality from your life comes from saying, you know, I had some good cards, I had some bad cards, but I was there for it. I learned. Of course, the quality of presence with this sentience, with this this physical body, uh, takes quite a commitment because uh, everything in our culture 
is driven the other way. I remember in, I had the same experience a little bit the first time I was here of you know feeling like this, this, this church is this ship here, you know, and there's two busy streets on both sides and there's sounds going off and sirens going off and then there's this commitment and I really appreciate the quality of your silence. It has a really nice feel to it. And um, there's a beauty to it. You know, to come together for 45 minutes in that commitment to be silent, to sit at that portal and listen. How unusual. How remarkable. How much that makes you to be a group of lovers, no less. You know, that you commit to your sentience in this way, together, to learn, to open. And I think the beautiful thing to really do it through the body is that when you start feeling the dimensions of emptiness, there's an experience when it moves through the heart that it isn't just empty, but it's, it's open also. I'm thinking of uh, a day not too long ago, December 13, um, when uh, Tuki Williams was executed. And uh, of course, there was a lot going on in San Quentin that day. And uh, I sit with a group of lifers every Tuesday. There's about 18 guys. And uh, together they've served over four centuries of time. And we've been sitting together for about five, six years. And we don't just sit and meditate. We, we cut it up together. So I'd like to read a little something about um, some reflections on that day and also in connection with you know, uh, this piece of sentience that I'm talking about. Because in really in the culture, it's the other way around, right? Uh, uh, sentience serves consciousness. Body serves mind. You know, the masculine, the f- you know, the feminine suffers this over-rational masculine thing. The planet, the you know, nature, the pollution. You know what I'm saying, I hope. I gathered my group of life-sensed men. Everyone had that stupefied look on their face. This is, this is uh, less than 12 hours after the uh, execution. And, uh, it, you know, I walk in that gate every day now for, for six years, so I'm used to quite a bit, but it was different. You know, I passed the stop sign, and there was a, uh, a molten candle on the stop letters on the road with tire tracks over it. And then there was the newspaper box near the post office that said in big letters, Tuki executed. You know, kind of like as if you had to read about it to see if it really was true or something. And, um, and it just was kind of a slow motion, altered feel of walking in there that day because, 
you know, less than 12 hours before, there had been helicopters and, you know, SWAT police over the hills and demonstrators. and So it, it was different. Everyone had that stupefied look on their face that is a known sign of shock. And it took a while to establish our usually so available tribal mode. I asked the men to report on how they felt, sharing that we need each other in that struggle so as to not have to participate in the opinionated, incontinent mind-pissing that is going on all around us with everybody trying so hard to be right about how things should be as a means to avoid having to feel so deeply or choose to be so numb that they think they don't care and don't know. That produced some faint smiles and nods on these warrior faces and signaled a moment to practice, to sit in silence, feeling to our bodies and breathe, and lend voice to that place. First, Ali spoke. Ali's from Kosovo, where he has seen all kinds of atrocious and inhumane behavior. He has done 25 years now. He has aged beautifully, and his eyes shine with that glow of someone whose heart is warm. He's the unofficial mayor of the visiting room, where his joy in seeing families come together is contagious to all. His broken English only endears him more. I know, he says, I so not with everybody judging this man. I wonder, how can they think they know anything? I work in the laundry and a couple days ago they asked me to press Tuki Williams shirts. I look at this name on the collar and I touch these letters on the shirts. I do my most perfect job on pressing excellent seams in these shirts and I pray to Allah to have mercy on this man, on his victims and everyone in the death room. With every movement I make, I put this love into these shirts. I pray for Allah to be with him in the shirt when he wears it, when they stick the needle in him and he look at the faces of the people who he love. I saw him before through the thick window of the visiting room and I run my hand over the seams of my shirt and put on my heart. He give me big smile and make perfect sign with his fingers. This I do for him and I will do it again four weeks from now when they kill the next man. So, I'm happy to say Ali got a release date last Wednesday. Um, the uh, situation with getting a release date as a life sentence man is the parole board you go for a hearing, and if they deem you suitable, you get a release date. Unfortunately, the governor, as has been the tradition in the last 10, 12 years, uh, routinely vetoes his own self-appointed uh, parole board. So, though there is the joy of getting the date, there is then the letdown of seeing it taken. Uh, this can happen a couple of times over the years. But I'm, I'm telling you the story because uh, what do we do, right, in, in such extreme situations when um, there's such an affront 
to sentience. And um, I'm only learning about that. It's not like I've got a real good answer for you. I know it's important not to take it personal. You know, I, I understand that there's something about the world that is based on pretty much a mistaken perception. So on that level, the world does what it does really well because there's this mistaken perception. So, you know, to find a place to sit in that and uh, be instructed by the moment itself is what I'm studying. You know, working in a place like that. I know that there's something about equanimity there, but I don't really know what that is yet. So... We'll see. So being there and not being there and being present, not being present, being alive, being killed. What really touches me at the core of uh, the Buddha story is uh, that part of the story when he sits under the Bodhi tree and um, he's being tempted by Mara. And, you know, Mara is good at that job. Um, He sends all the temptations you can think of. And each time the Buddha recognizes, recognizes the temptation and says, ah, this is you, Mara. And he names the temptation, and he names Mara. And so Mara is uh, thinking, well, you know, I, get a, I, get, I have a candidate here. I, I better pull out the stops on this one. So he, uh, he thinks of his best trick, and um, he takes on the shape of Buddha's wife. Now, Buddha had left his wife, so this was not a bad trick. And uh, he gets real close to the Buddha, gets really close to his face and says, basically says, this is not the Hindi version, but basically says, who the F do you think you are? That you have the right to sit here like this, claim this enlightenment, and then come back to teach others about it. Who do you think you are? And the story goes that the Buddha very gently touched the earth and put his other hand on his heart and looked back at Mara and said, with the earth is my witness, I have a right to be here.
Now, that story really moving to me. I, I like every detail about it. You know, he didn't go like, with the earth as my witness. You know, no, it was a gentle touch and a hand on his heart. And uh, in some sense, you know, I feel that many of us, most of us, I think, are uh, striving for that realization, opening, forget the striving piece, opening to that realization of really feeling we belong here. You know, whatever, however that runs for you. For some people that's, you know, feeling like they're the children of God. It it doesn't matter, I think, what it's named. But it's, it's asserted with a gentleness. It's, it's a realization, it's an arriving, it isn't a positioning or a stating or a claiming even. And I think, you know, it's easier when you come into the fullness of that to feel that, yeah, other people too, other beings too have the right to be here. And I think without really feeling that through the body, we tend to believe our thoughts. And that's worth some studying, that one. This thing about thoughts. You know, if you look carefully, what you'll see is that there's some feeling that comes up. And particularly if you don't like it, it's painful. Immediately, this thought comes out. And the um, thought usually uh, has something to do with wanting the situation to be different. I mean, it's, it's natural. It's, pain is not something you, you know, you try to produce. But um, if we then believe this thought, if we don't question it, if we don't reflect on it, um, something happens. It's something that, you know, is karmic by nature because in the prison, in the, in the class, we talk about, you know, there's two kinds of pain. And the one pain is the original pain. And um, it can be very intense. Like if a loved one dies and you have to show up for that, or you develop cancer or a serious disease or somebody in your family or circle of friends develops cancer, which is pretty much all of us in the, in the room. Uh, those are difficult things. Now, there is a way in this perspective where you learn how to sit in the fire and you burn clean and what's left is ashes. And you rarely do it alone. The karmic pain, the secondary pain, is born of avoiding that original pain 
and causes an extra load of pain or suffering. And then when you finally come around, guess what? In this corner of the universe, if you look closely, that original pain will still be there in some shape or form. So when you use drugs and you medicate or you, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of ways to, to avoid this moment, of course. Um, then um, you're on that karmic pain cycle. And um, and so there's something there that's really important to look at. I'm reminded of a story I heard Jack t- tell once, Jack Cornfield, about these uh, people that uh, were Jews in Eastern Europe and um, you know had fled and made it to America. Excuse me. And uh, had lived quite a life, and a lot of them had actually come together now in this uh, convalescent home. And this anthropologist was doing a study, asking these people about their experience, since they had gone through so much. And so she uh, wrote down this dialogue between uh, Moshe and Yeshu. And uh, let's see if I'll see if I remember it. But Yeshe. Uh, Moshe asks Yeshua, so tell us about your life, you know? We know you've gone through a lot. Tell us about your life. And Moshe says, well, I don't really want to. You know, I, I don't know if that does any good. And Yeshua says, well, you know, you've got time now. You might as well talk. Well, says Moshe, I'll, I'll give it a try. And um, he says, well, what the word that comes up is pain. And first noble truth. The word that comes up is pain. And um, the quality of your life, he said, has really got a lot to do with how you deal with that. And I've had a lot of it, so I had a lot to practice. And he said, so sometimes, you know, I sit by myself in front of the stove or something and it comes on it comes on in waves and he says I not, what I've learned now is I don't get up anymore and have a schnapps or put on the TV or read something but I stand up he says and I call it in I call it in I said okay I will feel this I will feel this he says, and when you do that, and when you do that, well, you get some kind of clarification. So Yeshua says, well, that sounds kind of uh, masochistic to me, man. You know, stand up and call it in. What? Are you sure about that? And he says, yes, I am, because it's not masochistic. It's, exact, it's because exactly right there, if you're able to transformed by embracing it, uh, something really good happens. He said, I read something once about this Russian author called Dostoevsky, who said, uh, you have to learn to be worthy of your suffering. He said, and so, I think, I think I'm getting a little bit of that. So, 
So I think that's a really beautiful uh, uh, phrase there, to learn how to be worthy of your suffering. I'm going to read you a little bit of this and then uh, love to do some uh, questions and answers. This was uh, written by an author named Mark Nepo. It's called The Rhythm of Each. I think each comfort we manage, each holding in the night, each opening of a wound, each closing of a wound, each pulling of a splintered or razored word, each fever sponged, each clear thing given to someone in greater need, each passes on the kindnesses we've known. For the human sea is made of waves that mount and merge till the way a nurse rocks a child is the way that child, all grown, rocks the wounded. And how the wounded allowed to go on, rock strangers who in their pain don't seem so strange. Eventually, the rhythm of kindness is how we pray and suffer by turns. And if someone were to watch us from inside the lake of time, they wouldn't be able to tell if we are dying or being born. Anyway, those are some amblings. Um, any questions? John, when you were here last time, you summarized three or four principles that mm. men yeah. had come up with. Mm-hmm. And I've been trying to recall them. Right. To okay. Yeah, this is the, the lifers group I, I just mentioned. And uh, we have a category of, uh, of amongst ourselves that we call those who have left before they went out. Those who have left prison before they went out. And one day we sat together and said, uh, okay, so, you know, could we describe that? What are some of the criteria for that? So we came up with three criteria. And the first one was to say about this moment, meaning whatever presents, as this is perfect. In other words, welcome. Now, you don't have to like it, or you don't even have to agree with it, right? But since this is all there is, it's a, a worthy study to hold it as perfect and see what comes up. You know, I'm not saying go into denial, ring the bells, you know, throw off your shoes and say it's all perfect and, you know, like that. But to study it as, you know, there's perfection here. I may not know it. There may be some time involved. But let me hold it like that. The second one is to say that when challenged, 
uh, this moment or this person is my teacher. And, you know, same thing. You, know, you most likely won't like that very much. But that may not be that important. Uh, because when you're learning, you're open. When you're judging, you're not. It's that simple. The third one um, basically says, thank you. And it says it up front. It doesn't say it at the end of something where you've gotten something you've liked and now you go, whoa, thank you. Right? No, it says it up front. Uh, Brother David Steinelrust speaks about it as a gratefulness. Right? He's very good with that. He speaks about it as that quality that... Um, That quality of attention that turns, turns anything that's given into a gift. Quality of attention that turns anything that's given into a gift. Now, this is a study. It's not like, you know, this is going to flow right through. Uh, but they're helpful markers. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And what that, what that is. Yeah, yeah. You know, it took me a while to figure this out, being sort of North European and thick-skulled. But um, I was already in prison for a while when I, I began to see the significance of this piece of my life, where my father was a prisoner in the Second World War. I was born in Holland. And um, he was a young man when the Germans basically, you know, raided villages and took young men because all the German men were in the war effort. And he was uh, uh, basically taken to do forced labor. Now, that basically meant you did a lot of work in munitions factories, which is, of course, awful, you know, the, the very places that fight your people you now have to work in. And uh, there was a, a soldier in the group that uh, brought them over there who came from a farm, and my father came from a farm. And so uh, there was nobody at the farm, and uh, this German soldier got it together that my father was assigned to this farm rather than a factory. This was close to Poland and what was East Germany later. And uh, in, it was uh, bitter cold winters. He slept in the stable basically and uh, learned how to speak a little Russian because there was this little boy that would come and visit him there and basically worked on the farm. So then when the Russians came in, he uh, could say, in Russian that he was Dutch, he wasn't German, which really saved his life about six times over. And then uh, as they were uh, bombing Germany, 
uh, and you know that was falling apart, he walked home, which is you know uh, a long journey, and it was really in a journey that he met a lot of. Uh, he saw a lot of horrible things and, and was in danger numerous times himself. So anyway, he made it back and um, he never talked much about it. But as children, we could hear him scream in, in his dreams about the war. And when the Berlin Wall came down, uh, he decided he wanted to go back and take my mother. And, you know, he, he was, he'd never gone anywhere. He'd never left the country after after being forced out of it. He was a milkman. A half of the living room was the store. <laughs> so to go to Germany was a big deal. But he did, and he took my mother, and he uh, took the train, the bus. He met a shepherd. farm was still there, looked very dilapidated, knocked on the door, and was recognized instantly by the woman who opened because she was one of the servants at the time, and the Russians had given everything to the servants. Anyway, uh, you know, he, they spent a the night there, and then uh, he met the, uh, the the soldier had died, but he had met he met his brothers. There was one brother left, and some of his uh, children, and basically made peace with all of them, and went home and never screamed again in his sleep. So it's interesting, you know, to be the son of a father who was like both the prisoner and the victim. Um, had a lot to do with, you know, my, my current uh, charge there. Um, but it was also, you know, kind of being, becoming educated, doing, starting with an afternoon a week and really learning the amount of injustice and racism and, and uh, I mean, you know, basically you have two people in a cell of three and a half by 11. If you had a 50-pound shepherd in there, the SPCA would sue you because you need a certain square amount of square footage per pound of dog. And this is what we do. There's 6,000 people in there. Well, I could go on, but, you know, I started waking up to like, Wow. Wow. But you know, it feels special to, rem to deeper and deeper come to that story because my dad now has Alzheimer's. So it, it, it feels even more uh, true to connect with that. Thank you. And you know, one of the programs runs like that where the victims come in. And these are victims of serious crimes. Uh, murder, kidnap, rape, and offenders of serious crimes. We had a woman come in who brought her quilt we had this series of incredible mothers come in whose sons had been killed. And with this mother come in who brought a quilt that was, each square was a year of her son's life. Very personal, moving piece, and she wanted the men to touch it. 
And so we set up uh, a series of dialogues where the women tell their stories and the men tell their stories. No elaboration, no exoneration. You know, this, this is how this person was killed and this is how I killed him. And there's something about being truthful and not, you know, painting it that really uh, creates a lot of healing. And it's kind of, you know, for a lot of the victims, it's sort of like you have a bond when you bring in life, but you also have a bond when you take it out. And, and for some of the victims, it's important to engage that bond. And um, one of the prisoners remembered the date that her son was killed. And so two weeks ago, he brought this up, shall, can, shall we do something? And so we've decided to make a quilt, a tiny one, about this big, with uh, pieces of paper or things we can find in the prison, and with a picture of her son in the middle, and then invite her back in. She, she's quite remarkable, I've got to say. She's quite... She, we uh, <clears throat> got it approved to have a Thanksgiving dinner with that group, and uh, she cooked the turkey. And then, since she, she's smart, so she knew that all the food would get cold before we'd gone through all the security, so she put hot gravy in a thermos. Now that's love. <laughs> that's love. And it was received as that. That was very moving to the man. I would imagine that it takes a lot of work on the part of both the victims and the offenders to come to a point where a mother can share a quilt. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? What, mm-hmm. what processes do you or the people that you work mm-hmm. with use to facilitate that? Because it seems like that's really where the the grist is mm-hmm. in the preparation I think we hold the space you know for it that basically says you know it's alright for the heart to open and, and go there so that um, I think a lot of people who have a loved one murdered sit with this question. You know, first it can enter like, well, why did this happen to me? You know, or why my son or my daughter or, you know, my beloved? And there's a need to understand, you know. A lot of people get mad with God about it. So, so there's a need to understand and sort of reclaim some larger piece of wounded humanity that uh, actually is healing and offers some closure or some response. And it's not always forgiveness. You know, we're not... I mean, forgiveness arrives. It's not to be produced. 
comes on its own bidding. Sometimes it is, you know, I wanted to know, because we also do it with actual offenders and actual victims. So the crime is related. Sometimes they want to know what were the last words. Quite often there is an experience of um, a very close relationship between the offender and the victim. It's remarkable to see. Does that answer your question? I meant more, <coughs> what's the preparation up to that? Or is that? Maybe oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. It seems to me there would have to be a lot. If, yeah, uh, quite often close to a year yeah. of preparation, of visiting them separately and, uh, you know, feeling it out and getting ready for the meeting to take place. So, yes, it's not done hastily. Not so hasty. Yes? Uh, I was curious about the, uh, the practice or the, the Vipassana practice that you are, uh, mm-hmm. and the, the, the group you, you work with. What mm-hmm. do you, um, I don't know, what, what sort of, some, I'm just sort of curious about mm-hmm. what happens. Do the prisoners take it out very seriously? And you very serious about it? Is it something that they generally do just um, on the, the daily or weekly visits? Or? You know, we, we pretty quickly learned that... Uh, oh, okay, yes. Good, thank you. The uh, question was, um, do the prisoners relate pretty well to the meditation, to the Vipassana? Is it something they do um, straight out easily or, or not? And the answer is not. Um, we pretty quickly learned it was best for us to leave our ideology at home and, and show up to learn what the needs were and, and be in service of that. Now, what we did develop was that everybody on staff has a contemplative practice. It's not necessarily all Buddhist. And each class will have some time set aside for meditation or reflection. And the idea being if you, and then we found some language about that too, to speak to that. You know, basically we're saying, you know, if you buff out on the yard and you do your push-ups, you could also learn how to do, build the muscle to strengthen your ability to witness. So that... Um, if you learn not to have to follow a blind reaction, but you learn how to make a re- cultivate a response, make a choice, you have just entered the difference between committing a crime or not. Is that, is that poignant? So that, um, you know, for, in, in conversation that comes to mind was that we were getting ready for a moment of spiritual reflection and this younger kid says, well, well, I don't see why I have to do this, man. You know? This seems like some kind of cult thing we're, we're all about to get into here. What, what's this all about? So I said, well, you know, nobody's telling you to do it, but it would be nice if you could let us do it, if, you know, 
if you wish not to do it. But I said, you know, where were you before we had this conversation? He says, I was in county jail. I said, okay. And, and then? He said, well, I was in the courtroom. I said, okay. I said, do you remember there's this little place in the courtroom called the witness stand? You know, and people go stand in it and they tell your story and they often get it wrong and here you are. Hell yeah, they get it wrong. I say, okay, okay, okay. But what you do have to watch look at whether they got it wrong or not is you gave up your ability to witness your experience and so now other citizens get to have the right to stand there and witness for you so there may be some connection here between you learning how to do this and uh, the fact that we're having this conversation right here so then you know it makes it, you know, you kind of you have to bring it home. You have to hit them where it fits them. Otherwise, it's really more about us. Well, uh, we have two minutes left. We're going to take one more question. Please. Could you elaborate for the next two minutes more about Right. It, this, it's this whole science, isn't it? Because even us, with our practice, don't have like a freebie here. Because there's that time where you're triggered or your buttons are pushed. And it's, it's frightening, isn't it, to see that regardless of your practice, boom, there you go. And those of us married or in relationship, raise your hands. Right? <laughs> um, so it's, it's a good question. You know, it's like what to do and things like that because that, that whole prison is a document of people having responded the wrong way to that moment. Um, that moment, by the way, we, we call it, uh, in, the, in the violence prevention class, we call it the moment of fatal peril. The moment between anger and violence or the moment between craving and using and it has three characteristics. It's everything speeds up. Everything gets a lot more intense. And there's usually an experience of regret afterwards. Okay? So, in that room of fourth century surf, we did a little survey once of people, you know, how long were you in that moment of fatal peril when you committed your crime? And we came to about 45 minutes. So, 45 minutes or centuries. And you know, it's not any different for us. You know, we're doing time on all sides of the walls uh, on these things. So, uh, just very briefly, um, what is really important to understand is this, this is why you have a teacher, for example. Uh, but it's not necessary, I'm not saying, well, therefore you must have a teacher. But it is important to understand that there's this unique part of being a human being that we don't know what we don't know. Ta-da! So, uh, it's important to understand that these moments have denial energy in them. And denial is not a feeling as we thought it was. Denial is the avoidance of feeling. 
And so, because there's that unguarded blind spot and these sort of volcanic undercover denied energy, there's this rush. It's like a black hole. And, um, and so we're started to work now with ways on how to work with that. And it has a lot to do with first finding the feeling in the body. And, uh, you know, becoming intimate with it. Being worthy. Becoming worthy of it. And then there's a few things we do in, in sort of a transformative healing mode that basically refer to following that feeling to the first time you felt it. Which is often as a young child. Sometimes it's beyond that. And... Uh, doing a guided meditation piece with that to uh, simultaneously come into the uh, experience of it but also uh, since you're now there with your conscious self uh, change it like you know changing the actual experience let's not fool ourselves but you do have the opportunity to create a different way to hold that. Now, I'm sure this might bring up more questions than, uh, than I could answer right now, but that's really the best I could do in, in two minutes. Okay, so um, thank you for being lovers of silence and, and uh, life's agenda and uh, for having a community to come together in. And it's, you know, great, great blessing and fortune to do it together. And uh, thank you for letting me speak to you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.